0: God is faithful. He is bigger even than your sin. So cheer up. there is hope and this time of Lent is a time where we look deeply at our sin. we don't shy away from it.' it isn't a, it isn't a, a way of trying to escape the reality. We don't say, well, well let's because Christ came, let's not talk about that messy stuff of sin. let's not talk about the messy stuff of, of, of problems no. It gives us a hope, a cheer up. You can look at it in all its ugliness. You look at it in the knowledge that Christ is one, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is faithful. We're not like the Stoics. We're not just simply trying to grin and bear it. We know that there is death, yes. But death does not have the final word. Resurrection does. Because of the hope that is in Christ. But as a reminder as well, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And that's why, friends, one of the, this certainly isn't limited to this, but one of the, is so important for you to come, whether to this church or some other church that preaches the gospel, that worships God in spirit and truth, to be reminded you need that reminder constantly of God's faithfulness, to sing out, to celebrate it, to say God is one, to say I can say it is well with my soul, to say all creatures of our God and King rejoice To say there is one gospel, we need to be reminded and to celebrate that truth and that reality for it to shape our hearts. And so what we see then in the light of God's faithfulness, we see as well a way of distinctively responding to the faithfulness of God with worship. Notice David's response in verses 7 through 12. And so you see these great victories that David has over this guy who he really loves to mention his name and it's just very difficult for me to pronounce. And we see David taking the bronze and the, and, the, and, the, and the spoils of the battles. But what does he do? He dedicates them to the Lord. What we see, and in many ways we see a sharp contrast Remember, first and second Samuel, is meant to, they weren't meant to be separated. We see a strong contrast between the way David dealt with victory and the way Saul dealt with victory. Because if we remember, we go back, David was deeply insecure, or excuse me, Saul was deeply insecure as a king. He did not have the ability to trust in the faithfulness of God. And so he was deeply insecure in his kingship. And so after a battle... Often what we see, even when Jonathan defeated the Philistines, what, are David, what is Saul's response? It wasn't, go proclaim what God has done. Go let it be told throughout Israel what Saul has done. And then later on, after the, the battle with the uh, Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15, what do we see after the defeat of the Amalekites? Saul erected a monument to himself. We don't see that reality. We don't see that functioning with David here. Why? Because David had this childlike dependence upon God. And that's what differentiated him from Saul. That's what made their kingship so different. It wasn't because David was a far less sinful person, as we've seen, and certainly we're about to see, and even more grotesque ways he was a deeply sinful person he had this childlike dependence upon god we talked about that in our sunday school class as we looked at psalm 131 a psalm of david where he compares himself to a weaned child this great and mighty king this conqueror of the philistines and the barbarians and the ammonites I don't don't raise my eyes too high. My heart's not lifted too high. But I'm like a weaned child. Dependent upon God within there. And that's exactly the type of attitude God has said through Jesus Christ that is the characteristic of the kingdom of God. And so he told them quite clearly, if you, the kingdom of God you want to enter into it, you got to enter into it like a child. What does that mean? To be dependent, completely and utterly dependent on God for everything, realizing that everything that we have is grace. Everything that we have is grace. And what this does is that actually gives us incredible freedom. We buck against that, but it's incredible freedom for us to embrace that reality, which is absolutely true according to scriptures, that we live in a God-enchanted world. Children get to live in an enchanted world, but that is the true world. We like to think that we've grown up and we've removed the enchantments. and In many ways, that's what the secular project is of our day. Remove any supernatural, remove anything, just fine. Only that is there is the chemistry involved with the world. It tries to say that that's where hope is, but actually is remarkably cynical and hopeless. It is dark, and when you see it pushed to its ends, there's a reason why the new atheism has completely collapsed. It's not sustainable. we understand that this world, while yes, is filled with atoms and neutrons, particles, is filled with galaxy that is beyond our imagination of stars and nebulas, physics, mathematics that would simply blow our mind. And its complexity and its ingenuity is a world that is ultimately our Father's world a world in which he is sovereign and in control. We struggle to live in this enchanted world. We hold on to the secular story because honestly it fits with the lie that we all buy into, the lie of Satan in the garden, that through our own power we can become like God. We love to blame God when things go bad, but when everything's good, we like to take the credit for it. We like to say this is us. We did this. I got this college degree through my own hard work. I've advanced in my career because of my own wisdom and hard work and effort within there. But in fact, the reality, and this confronts us, and this really challenges us, is that it's grace all the way down. That what we have, whether it's our job, whether it's our savings account, regardless of how many pennies you pinched, for 40 years, if you have anything in the savings, it's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that makes us want to brush your, you know, move back a little bit. But that's the testimony and the reality of scriptures to understand that all that we have is grace. But we're so one of the reasons we also rebel against that is because we're so desperate for love. We are afraid that if we surrender anything good about us, who would love us? Who would receive us? Who would be affectionate towards us? But that's one of the most beautiful and glorious things about marriage—the most intimate form of love we have. Because in marriage, it points us to the gospel. Because it points us to the reality that we can be loved. That we can take off all of our clothes and be naked and vulnerable for the person and all that we are. A person that, quite frankly, we ourselves struggle to love, but yet to believe that we can be loved with all of our warts, with all of our frailties, with all of our brokenness. That's why marriage is a picture that points us to Christ, because we don't do that perfectly. But our hunger for it points us to a hunger for an even deeper love, a love of grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to respond to these promises of God? With, well, it means responding with faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. In verse 4, we see David hamstringing the, the, the horses. And that bothers us. We struggle with that. Why would he do that? Well, the reason is, when you look at the Deuteronomy commands of the way the king would be to act, is they were not to collect and multiply for themselves horses and chariots. In other words, they weren't to be a people that become dependent upon the military technology of the world. As their source of dependence. We also see that in faith he ruled with justice and equity in verse 15. What do we see there? It is subtle, but it actually actually kind of screams out when we know what to look for. David is responding to these victories not by saying, ooh, look at this opportunity for me to make myself more powerful, but look for me for ways to become more dependent upon God, to respond and declare my trust in the living God with him. is a response to what God has done. Not to say, ooh, let me do something to impress you, God. But a response to move further into trust and obedience. Now, as I said earlier, most of us, I hope, aren't going to be called to go fight wars. You may not have an opportunity to collect chariots and horses. But we are called to live out a kingdom ethic by faith. And it's a kingdom ethic that, quite frankly, only makes sense through the risen Christ. What is that kingdom ethic? We often think of a kingdom ethic in sense of don't do this, don't do that. But a kingdom ethic is... And certainly there's things that we're supposed to avoid, desires we're supposed to, to, to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it goes behind a life of holiness that is called to love. To do something crazy, forgive. To love those who have cursed you. but that might make me vulnerable for them to hurt me again if I forgive them. That's why it's a response of faith and trust in the living God. That's why it's a, fa- a response of faith that my identity is secure in who God is and his love for me. But if I, if, I, if I turn the other cheek, if I love my enemy, that might give him power over me. That's why it's a result of faith of acknowledging that Christ is Resurrected, all authority and power has been given into Him. To give up our desire, our longings, and submit them before God, to love our neighbor as ourselves. What that does is that shows a hope in the living God. It is ultimately a call to trust in grace and love, to rest in his love and in his provision. You may not be tempted to rest in chariots. You may not be tempted to rest in horses. I guarantee you're tempted to rest in your, your stock portfolio. You're tempted to rest in maybe your devotional time that you please God. You're tempted to rest in maybe how much money you gave in the offering. You're tempted to rest in your work ethic. You're tempted to rest in how well you raised your family. You're tempted to rest in the strength of your marriage. You're tempted to rest in how well in you've, you've shunned cookies and eaten broccoli. I do not share that rest.. There's all kinds of ways we are tempted to rest. but to move forward into the reality of who God is calls us to rest in one thing. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and in His resurrection. And ultimately, it is a renouncing of any calls for you to rest. In your salvation, that this world will end up OK because of anything you have done and only resting in what like Christ has done for us in the cross. And so that is my call to you this morning. What are you trusting in? We see here presented a God who is remarkably, beautifully and gloriously faithful, who cannot be stopped in His grace and His mercy and his sovereignty over this world. Anything you try to rest in will be stopped. But the faithfulness of God will not be stopped. So what are you putting your hope in? Especially, what are you putting your hope in to know and to receive this love? Is it in yourself, and something you do? Or is it what Christ has already done His ultimate act of faithfulness and obedience on the cross. And in his resurrection power. What are you trusting in today? I present to you a God who is worthy of all of all of your trust and all of your hope. As Jake Miller said, cheer up. It's worse than you understand. But God is bigger than you could possibly imagine. He's a good God. Place your hope and your trust in him this morning. Let's pray. Our most gracious and loving Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. You're faithful even though we do not deserve that faithfulness. We do not deserve your love. Enable us to trust in you. Give us the faith this morning to put aside. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us in all the ways that maybe we're not trusting you. That we're seeking hope in other things. Enable us to put our trust completely in you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.